Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, September 15th. With us now, NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, who has a beautiful new book called Dinners with Ruth. As you probably don't need to be told, those dinners were with Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As you may not know, their first conversation was four years before Nina was hired by NPR, which would put it 22 years before Ginsburg joined the Supreme Court. The book can give you a glimpse of their particular friendship, Maybe also about Ginsburg and abortion rights, which I think she thought could have been established by the court on a sturdier foundation than Roe versus Wade. We'll ask Nina about that. But also about how Nina's approach to journalism comes with getting to know Supreme Court justices in general as people, not just as justices with their opinions on a page or as representatives of certain ideologies. And you can learn about Nina's friendships not just with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this book, but also NPR's Cokie Roberts and Linda Wertheimer, the so-called founding mothers of NPR, and more. So let's hear some of that now in conversation. The full book title is Dinners with Ruth, a Memoir on the Power of Friendships. Nina, it's always great when you come on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Can we start with some Nina Totenberg prehistory, since this is a memoir and everybody loves you? Uh-huh. Where did you, you grow up, and what made you want to go into journalism in the first place? Well, I grew up first in New York City, then the suburbs of New York City, then a little jaunt to Illinois, to, where my dad was a professor for um, a year in order to... <laughs> he sort of figured he had to pay for three daughters' college tuitions, and he better start being paid for teaching more. So he started it with a friend at the University of Illinois and then went to, then became chairman of the string department at BU because he was a famous virtuoso violinist. And, um, and so then we moved to Boston and eventually I grew up there. I got jobs there. I worked for the late record American, which is now called the Boston Herald or the Boston Herald American. If you look at the little, subtitle I think is there and um, eventually went to Washington to seek not fame and fortune to seek a job <laughs> covering the the government of the United States. If your first contact with Ruth Bader Ginsburg was four years before you joined NPR so that would be 1971 where were you working or what were the circumstances of that contact? At the time, I, I I was working for the late great National Observer, which was a weekly published by Dow Jones, then at that time the owner of the Wall Street Journal, and um, I was assigned, among other things, to cover the Supreme Court. And I was reading this brief about sex discrimination, and it was, turned out to be. Uh, Justice Ginsburg's first brief filed in the Supreme Court, and it marked the first time that the Supreme Court held that women are covered by the Constitution's guarantee to equal protection of the law. But I didn't understand that, so I 
I really didn't understand that because women didn't have the vote at the time the 14th Amendment was passed. So I, at that point in the press room at the Supreme Court, there were these little bitty phone booths, and I went in, and I, I dialed the number on the front of the brief at Rutgers University Law School, and Justice Ginsburg, then Ruth Ginsburg, answered the phone, and she spent the next hour with me teaching me her argument and with me asking questions and her answering. And it was a, an incredible experience. And it was marked the beginning of first a professional friendship and ultimately a personal friendship as well. It's a wonderful story. Has that been firmly established in the law by now via the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which was a post-slavery amendment, of course, um, does also apply to women? I certainly still hear from callers sometimes who say we need an equal rights amendment to the Constitution for real gender equality. Do you do you understand the argument there uh, if the Equal Protection Clause from the 14th already applies? Well, it's an interesting question. You see, the Supreme Court never fully embraced her argument that women are covered at the same high threshold as um, as is the case with race, for example, because after all, the 14th Amendment was adopted to protect racial minorities. And, and, and the court has used a slightly lesser standard for women. Um, it's not, we're not a suspect class. We're an intermediate level class. So there might be some reasons that you could discriminate against women. And therefore, the mm -hmm. argument is made and Justice Ginsburg certainly made it, that you need, a, you need a, another amendment to the Constitution to make clear that women are a suspect class, that if they're treated differently, the presumption absolutely is that the law, the regulation, the whatever is unconstitutional. But as you well know, the ERA came close to passing some decades ago, but it was not adopted by three-quarters of the states as required. And there is a movement now to um, try to get it through this, you know, get, to to re, um, rejuvenate that old amendment. But I think it's really doomed. I mean, mm -hmm. even Ruth thought that it, you really mm -hmm. needed a new. You couldn't. You couldn't um, breathe new life into the old amendment. That you had to have a new new amendment that went through the process again. And there's certainly. I suspect it would not be three-quarters of the states that would approve. Did Ginsburg think abortion rights should have been decided by the Supreme Court on a basis, something like that, you know, that, that it would violate <clears throat> um, equal protection uh, or that it would be sex discrimination in, in some way to outlaw abortion or something other than privacy? Yes. She actually had a case that went to the Supreme Court the same year as Roe, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear it. But this about, uh, requires a bit of a setup. So uh, it was a classic, what I call, Ruthian case. She had a, a woman who did not want to have an abortion, who was a captain in the Air Force. And under the, the regulations at the time, um, if you were a woman in the military service, and you got pregnant, you were you either had to have an abortion, and they were usually performed in on foreign bases, bases in foreign countries, or 
you were discharged. And Susan Strzok did not want to have an abortion. She had made arrangements for uh, uh, some people she knew to adopt the child. And um, Ruth took the case uh, all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing as sort of the flip side of what we argue about today, but the same principle. And it's a really good uh, way to understand her approach. And the principle was personal autonomy over your own body and, and your future and your economic well-being, in her view. And so she took this case, and if you are, have the right to not have an abortion, then you would also have the right to have an abortion. Hmm. And the Supreme Court agreed to hear that case. However, the government, at the last minute, realizing it likely would lose, caved and changed the regulation. Hmm. So there was really no more case. And the Supreme Court did not hear the case or decide it, and Roe became the only basis for abortion rights as we know them today. Was Robert Bork involved with that? He was the Solicitor General under Nixon, and I think it was at that time, this case that you're describing, um, you know, regarding choice in the other direction, but but the government caved. Do you know if that was a, a Bork decision not to fight that? I don't think so, but I could be wrong. I think he had already left by the time this happened, which would have been... Uh, 73. I think mm-hmm. he was, Hillary. maybe, maybe not. You may be right, but I really, I have, that's, you've asked me a question. I don't know the answer to it. That would be an interesting, <laughs> f- interesting footnote to history, considering everything else about yeah. him. And yes. I see that. The, yes, it's entirely possible. I see in the book that the first Supreme Court justice you invited for dinner was Justice Lewis Powell and his wife, Powell was appointed by Nixon in 72, but then voted for abortion rights in Roe versus Wade, which did, of course, come the very next year, 1973, as you just cited. Do, do you remember asking Powell anything like how hard it was to go against the conservative president who appointed him? You know, I don't think he or almost any justice thinks it's difficult if they're correct, if their view of the law is correct to rule against the president who appointed him or now her. I've never met a Supreme Court justice who personally thinks that's difficult. But it is true that um, the justices on the Supreme Court today more closely align with the presidents who appointed them than in previous times. And there is no center left, the center remaining on the court. Mm. And I've, you know, I've been covering the court for many, many decades really since 1968, and I've never known a court without a center until now, and I don't know of a court without a center um, actually going back um, nearly 100 years. My guest is NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Her new book is Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. Uh, I will mention, by the way, and I'll say it again at the end of the segment, that Nina will be doing a live appearance here in New York tonight. 6.30 for both in-person and live streaming from the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel, 5th Avenue and 65th Street in Manhattan. Nina in conversation with Preet Bharara, 6.30 tonight at Temple Emanuel's Stryker Center. Let's take a phone call. Um, This, I guess it won't surprise you, 
uh, is a question that a number of callers on our board have for you about some of the stories in this book and some of the premise. So, Michael in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. You get to represent those callers. Hi. Um, so, for many years, I turned into NPR and that there was something crazy going on with the Supreme Court, I would think, well, Nina Tomberg's going to explain it to me, so uh, it's going to be fine. <laughs> but then later, it was mm-hmm. only years later, when I found, when it came out that you and Justice Gin- Ginsburg were such good friends, I just made me wonder, did you ever feel that you should kind of recuse yourself from reporting on either the court or specifically if there was something that Justice Ginsburg was specifically involved with, you thought, well, I'm such close friends with this person, there's some kind of journalistic ethic where I should, you know, not be the person reporting on this. You know, Washington is sort of a small town. If reporters recuse themselves because they knew somebody or had known them for a very long time and remained friends with them, there would probably, and they did it fairly, um, that is in the sense that everybody recused themselves on the same basis, I don't think you'd have any reporters left in Washington. Um, you know, if you have been there a long time, you have friends and associations, and part of the job is to put your friendship aside when necessary. I was great friends with Justice Antonin Scalia, who was a, the court's most conservative member for a very long time, until his death in 2016, and it never occurred to me to, um, seriously occurred to me, to recuse myself. I mean, there are times when it's uncomfortable. You know, when when Justice Ginsburg made inappropriate remarks about um, then-candidate Trump, she had to eat her words, and we had a long-scheduled interview that week, and she asked me not to ask her about it, and I just said, Ruth, I can't do that. That's my job. Mm. You can ream me out if you want, but, you know, and I did, and she did ream me out. And, you know, I remember that when um, there was some controversy about Justice Scalia uh, participating in a case involving um, a question involving then Vice President Cheney, and um, he didn't recuse himself, and he'd gone duck hunting with Cheney, and there was a something of a brouhaha about it, and he didn't say anything for the longest of times, and I wrote about it. I mean, you, I'm, it was very interesting to write about it because I had, I had. You know, I had to learn some history. And Supreme Court justices are generally not intimates of presidents anymore. But not that long ago, they were. And they they played poker at the White House with the president. And in the Reagan administration, not with President Reagan, but with, uh, you know, his close associates. And certainly in the 50s, there were justices who played poker at the White House. And they still ruled against the president, a very famous case in the 40s involving President Truman's um, basically nationalization for all practical purposes during the Korean War uh, involving um, ending a strike, I think it was, uh, involving a steel company. And and, and the court rule said he couldn't do that. And... Um, and it didn't ruin Truman's relationship with his friends on the court. Now, and a, a reporter doesn't have a real stake in any of these cases. I mean, I think the only time I recused myself was um, having not to do with um, a person, but a subject. On my honeymoon, I'd been run over by a um, 
a motorboat and nearly mm. died. Mm. And uh, there was a case involving um, federal and state re- uh, federal law that required motorboats to have more more protections for accidents exactly like this. And um, I went to my boss and I said, I, I, <laughs> I should not be covering this argument. But I will, and I didn't. But what I did do, I did cover the, the decision because covering the decision is covering the decision. I didn't have a dog in the fight anymore. The court had decided the issue mm. and I was explaining it. You, and so if I had ever felt that that way about Ruth, I would have recused myself, but there was no occasion to do that. You you do say, I believe, that you wouldn't have invited members of Congress to dinner, but you considered Supreme Court justices different. Is that right? To some extent, that's right. It was right at the time when I was very young, and I really didn't know members of Congress that I could have, you know, would have been, a, I could have invited to dinner with their wives. Um I, but I do now know some members of Congress who have been around a very long time, and um, I would, I would, and have had dinner with Alan Simpson, even though we had a, we had a famous fight at one point um, during the Thomas nomination, and I've, my husband and I have known Pat Leahy for decades. My husband knew him well before I did, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know they come to dinner occasionally. But by and large, politicians are different because there there are no rules. In the case of the Supreme Court, there are rules. They're not supposed to just, it's as if they were on a top secret intelligence committee. Always. They are, they are not ever supposed to discuss ca- pending cases. I mean, you can ask them about stuff after afterwards, and if they're still on the court, they probably won't answer you. But after they're, when they're off the court, sometimes they do talk about what their thoughts were about it and why they voted the way they did. But not while the case is pending. And so it's really clear. Nina Totenberg with us with her new memoir, Dinners with Ruth. And Alice in Islip, you're on WNYC with Nina. Hi, Alice. No, I'm in Ridgewood, but um, people might be interested to know that Nina can really sing. She sang at my mother's wedding, <laughs> her second wow. wedding. And, um, it's Who's your mother? <laughs> Amanda uh, Hobart. Uh, Mackenzie Hobart, but this is to how uh, small the <clears throat> Washington community is. And my father actually had Linda's beat, be- I mean, Nina's beat before she did at the Washington Post. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> it's true, he did. There he you did. Go. And I learned many, many things from Jack Mackenzie. He was a wonderful, wonderful reporter and a thoughtful, gentle human being. And, um, and, you know, it 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 does go to what a small town Washington is. And After all, I married nice. my first husband was a United States senator. <laughs> so, yeah, what you write about in the book. Let me ask you about one unrelated legal affairs thing in the news right now, and it's a little speculative. I'm just curious on all these Trump cases and investigations. Are there one or two aspects you think are most likely to wind up in the lap of the Supreme Court? You know, I can't tell yet. I really can't tell yet because we don't know if the Justice Department's investigation is going to bear enough fruit that um, the that that there would be an indictment against the president. We don't know how these even the 
fight about the documents at Mar-a-Lago are going to shake out. I think that may get to the Supreme Court the most quickly, if anything does. But I really, I don't have an informed view of any of this yet because you can't tell which cases are going to get get on the rocket docket to the Supreme Court and which ones are just going to sort of molder around for a while. Nina Totenberg, NPR's legal affairs correspondent. Her brand new book is Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. And Nina will be doing a live appearance here in New York tonight, 6.30, for both in-person and live streaming from the Stryker Center at Temple Emanuel, 5th Avenue and 65th Street in Manhattan. Nina in conversation with Preet Bharara there, so that ought to be a great one for legal geeking out on legal affairs. Nina and Preet, <laughs> 6.30 tonight, Temple Emanuel Stryker Center, in-person or live stream. And Nina, it's a wonderful book. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself for your many, advir- uh, your many you. admirers in it. Uh, and uh, thanks for sharing so much of it with us. Thank you for having me, Brian. You take care. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.